0: Adam and Tanya have been a part of the Trail of Joy. And the Trail of Joy began last year, and it's, uh, and, and it's uh, continuing this year during, all through the summer months. They have a tent, and they travel, and they start on the West Coast, and they're tra- traveling in reverse the Trail of Tears where so many uh, Native Americans lost their lives and were driven out of their homes and uh, and families were devastated by our fine government. Uh, it's one of the sins of our government in the United States that that there needs to be a lot of repentance and re- restitution for really, because it was an incredible injustice that was done. And so they've been retracing that. This year they began in Nashville, set up a tent there, ministered there. War broke out there. It was pretty intense. And then I think they went to... They went somewhere in Kentucky. Was it Wilmore? That area. Uh, And then they went to Cherokee, North Carolina. And this week uh, was going to be tent week there. I hadn't gone to to connect with them anywhere along that trail, but I felt like I was supposed to go this week. And uh, so Monday morning... I texted Mark, and I say, a short notice, but uh, what you doing? You want to travel to North Carolina with me? And he did some juggling and said, yep. And so we took off for Cherokee, North Carolina, and it's in, it's in the mountains. There's no easy way to get there. I'm just telling you that. There's. We literally went around one curve that went like this. It made more than a full circle. And... Uh, Anyway, we got there Monday evening, and I noticed before we left that Josh Lively's picture showed up down there. And I'm like, Josh and Elizabeth must have decided to go visit, too. I don't know if you remember Josh, but he is Michael Kelly's son-in-law, married to his daughter Elizabeth. He was one of the worship leaders at Fire in the Hills. And I'm like, they must have just decided to go down there and visit, too. Well, we get down there and discover, no, that's not why they went. His dad lives there that he hadn't seen since he was 12 years old. And he went down there to reconcile with his dad. And I'm like, you can't make this stuff up. And his dad's like half Cherokee. And uh, I'm like, oh, my God. So many things intersected that day that we were. So we were there all day. Tuesday, well, on Mo- Sunday evening or whenever it was, their tent got torn down and slashed. And, uh, and they wrote out in front, and I think it was on the sign, somewhere in the front, they wrote murderers, whoever did it. And uh, so there was some hostility and anger there. And so there's some stuff there that needed to be redeemed. So, so Mark and I were excited. I knew that Tuesday night is, is when whatever was going to happen, most of it was going to happen. I told Mark, he said, what's the purpose of us going down there? I said, well, we're going down there to love on Adam and Tanya and their family and just support them and what they're doing. Anything else is going to be a bonus. I knew there would be other stuff because I know how God works. And, uh, but in the evening service, uh, and, oh, and by the way, so they took their tent down and uh, there's, they had set it up at, on the empty lot next to the American Legion, and uh, who was very friendly to them, very cooperative. Well, the people at the American Legion called the chief uh, at the reservation and told him what happened. And he said, well, I'll send over my team with our tribal tent. So they came over Tuesday morning and set up the tribal tent. We're like, God's getting ready to do something here, you know? And so Tuesday night, uh, oh, oh, and... Uh, so we get there a little before lunch and the chief's team had just left. They had the, tribe set, uh, the tent set up and there's this young girl there that got on the keyboard and starts worshiping, just her just her worshiping in the tent. And we walked in and we're, whoa, the presence of the Lord is here. It's amazing. How did this young girl learn to carry the presence of the Lord like this? Oh my God, it turned out she was 18 years old, uh, part of a family from San Diego, California. The father actually comes from Canton, Ohio. And uh, her name is Sophia. Family of eight kids, seven of them are on the, on the tour with them, uh, from three year old up to 18 year old. And uh, the father comes over and starts talking to me. He says, Hi, my name's Chris. That's my daughter. I'm like, you got to tell me your story here. What's going on? And he said, well, I don't know if I should tell you or not. Maybe I should. I'll, do, I'll tell you just a little bit, just a tease. Um, because they may be here in two weeks. Um, he said, when I, my wife and I, we both came from dysfunctional families. Uh, we didn't know how family was done. But when we came into a relationship with the Lord, we said, Lord, how can we make sure that our kids are going to experience God the way we are? And the Lord said, bring your devotional life out of the closet and into the living room. Oh, okay. Simple, right? So they started two hours every morning worshiping and ministering as a family. These kids grew up in the presence of the Lord, and they're warriors. I want to tell you something. Anyway, they may be here in two weeks. I said, you know what? I'd like you to come. And, Scott, this is kind of a, if they come, uh, you can have a Sunday off. I, don't, I, want you, I want you to be here, but you can have a Sunday off. Uh, I said, I would like you to come and do the whole service. Do the worship. Do everything. And, show, and, sh- and share your story and show us what a kingdom family looks like. I said, our tribe, we we believe we, we say our strongest value is family. Why don't you come show us what kingdom family looks like? Because I think it's going to catch fire. It's amazing what these kids carry. All the way down to the three-year-old. Anyway, so that night, we got together. Josh and Elizabeth ended up leading worship. Josh's dad is sitting on the front row. He hadn't seen him since he's 12 years old. He's worshiping the Lord, and uh, it was—I was, mean, it was touching just to know that. And then there's this lady sitting beside him. I didn't know who she was, and uh, so at the end of the worship, uh, at, and it's Adam's night to speak and kind of lead the service. And so he introduced me, and he would asked me if, if I want to preach that night. I'm like, "No, Lord didn't really give me a message to preach." I'll, I'll, I have something to say, but I don't think I'm supposed to lead the service. He said, "Okay." But during the worship, I, I, I knew what I was supposed to do, so I went across the street to the gas station and got a bottle of red wine, and I came back. And so then, when when Adam introduced me, I I told him who I was, where you know, kind of where I, I'm from, who my tribe is, and I told him I said one of the treasures of our tribe is that we love the land. And the land loves us. And it responds to us. And it prospers for us. Because we're a peace-loving people, the land doesn't like bloodshed and violence. It doesn't like witchcraft. It doesn't like all of that stuff. And, uh, and so the land tends to come... Uh, when, when Cain shed his brother's blood, God didn't curse him, the land did. The Lord said the earth will no longer yield its strength to you because you shed your brother's blood. And and so I explained that to them, and I said, so what I want to do is I'm going to take this bottle of wine, and I'm going to pour it on the land. It represents the blood of Jesus for the healing of the land. And I spoke over the land and prayed over the land to release the pain, the rejection, the hopelessness, uh, the fear, all that stuff that was bound up in the land and the people on the land through the blood of Jesus being, and, and, and it was, I didn't make it very dramatic, It's pretty matter of fact, but I did half the bottle, and gave the rest to Adam, and then Adam preached his heart out, and he talked about how, um, every people is sacred, the Cherokee people are sacred, they're a sacred people, and, and how they are one of God's special creation, and, uh, Just, I mean, it really did a great job. And then at the end of that, he gathered us all in a circle uh, right in front of the stage. And we were just going to pray and release whatever God gave us over the land and over the area. And as we took hand, uh, held hands, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell on Adam and he fell on his face and he started Wailing. And he wailed and wept, and sobbed and cried out for like ten or fifteen minutes from the depths of his being. And I knew what was happening because I know Adam, and I, I knew what kind of sensed what was going on in the atmosphere. And uh, and so as he finally uh, started quieting down, I took the mic and explained, you know, that there's a priestly anointing that comes on Adam. And, uh, and he's releasing the pain and the whole, all that stuff that's bound up in the land and in the people that we just spoke to, and he's releasing that. And uh, it was pretty intense. Well, as soon as, uh, so I explained that to the people, and, as soon, and then I handed the mic back. As soon as I explained it to the people, this lady that was sitting beside Josh's dad comes over to me. And she says, my name is Miami. And I'm Josh's aunt. And she said, "I knew everything that you just said. I was going to say it because somebody needed to explain what was going on. But then you said everything I was going to say." And she said, uh, uh, "She said you don't understand what these people have gotten used to from the church." She said, "They didn't just get mistreated by the government. They've been, they've been." mistreated by, by the missionaries, by pastors, by the church all through these years. Every time someone's come here to preach the gospel, they've heard judgment, rejection, condemnation. You have to leave uh, your, the, the Native American ways and culture if you want to serve the Lord. All they've heard is that stuff. And that, she said, I know this were just angry, young, uh, tribal kids that are so full of anger and rejection and hopelessness. And they know the story about how, she said, my great aunt, when she was a young girl, she was across the street here, back where the river. The river is probably 100, 150 yards off the road across the street. Uh, so was playing in the water with the other kids. And she said the current started carrying some of them away. And she was afraid because their kids. she thought the kids were going to drown. So she came running as fast as she could to the missionaries and, and, and asking for help because the kids were drowning. And she said, but she, because she was so traumatized that she couldn't get it out in English, so she said it in Cherokee. The missionaries grabbed her and slit her tongue and said, you'd be better off never speaking again than to speak in that pagan language. She said, that's the pain that's been bound up in this tribe that's all they've ever heard she said she said and even she said this is the first time that a team has been here to preach the gospel that has brought a different kind of a message she said now there's some tribal people here tonight and they will take the word back that this is a different this is a different group they're not bringing a message of judgment and accusation and hate they're bringing a message of love and forgiveness and redemption She said, so the word will get out, and you'll start seeing some people come from the tribe. And I took her hands, and I said, Miami, look at me. I said, on behalf of all the missionaries, all the preachers, all the Christians who didn't represent Jesus the way he really is, I said, well, you, representing all of your ancestors, all of the people who've been traumatized, brutalized, rejected, and mistreated by us, will you please forgive us? And by then I'm crying, and then she's crying. She said, "Yes, I do." She knows the Lord. Yes, I do. And it was amazing. And we know that we were, we knew that we were on holy ground. And uh, and then it just went on from there. This week, it, through the meetings two nights ago, a spirit of travail hit the kids. Uh, He sent me a video. Little kids. I mean, right down to the three-year-olds and the five-year-olds on their face on the floor, weeping and wailing and travailing in intercession. Little Eden and little Harmony crying out, just weeping under the power of the Holy Spirit and travailing for God to come and visit these people. And So, keep them in your prayers. Anything you want to add, Mark? Mm. That's why they tore it down. So, uh, God, forgive us. God, forgive us. There's no excuse for a hateful gospel to be taken out to the nations. In fact, after that, I said, you know, I've never believed in turning our weapons of war against any of God's people, but I'm being tempted to bind every missionary that wants to go to the field that's not carrying the love of God. It's not okay. It's misrepresenting Jesus, and we'll answer for it. That's not who He is. Jesus weeps over that stuff. Mark 11:15. I'm going to see if I can get through some of this before it's time to eat. First, the spiritual and afterward the natural, right? We're going to do it in reverse order. Mark 11:15. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching and when evening had come he went out of the city my house should be called a house of prayer you know I I have to I have to say that's one of the scriptures that has that I've chewed on for many years and uh, I believe in prayer I believe in intercession. But I I am not called to outer court prayer. And what I mean by that is I'm not called to spend a lot of time in prayer driven by human effort. That is hard, strenuous physical stuff. I know God's house is to be a house of prayer. And that connects with some of the deep places of my heart. You know, Psalm 27.4 probably connects deeper in me than just about any other verse in the Bible. And it says, One thing I've desired from the Lord, that will I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That touches something deep inside of me. And that's where I try to live my life. On a personal level. I actually do much more of it personally than I do corporately. To just spend time in the presence of the Lord. Worshiping him. And in the context of that atmosphere that comes when he inhabits my worship. To pray the things that he puts on my heart. And that's the kind of prayer that really gets to the deep places of who I am. I try to maintain that. But this speaks of prayer in the inner court in an atmosphere of worship. Because worship is the atmosphere of heaven. And as I get old, I expect this to become the primary ministry of my life. It's already the most important thing in my life is to spend time in his presence ministering to him. Ministering to the Lord is what God's house is about. And I was declaring that for years before I could really articulate it, that the most important ministry is to the Lord. The first and most important ministry is to the Lord. If we can't spend time in his presence and worship him and inquire at his heart, then everything that we do is going to tend to be uh, human ideas and human effort. You know? No wool was allowed in the inner court of the tabernacle. The inner court, there was no natural light; it was all illuminated by the lampstand, which is a picture of the seven spirits of God or Holy Spirit. Uh, and there was there was no natural light there; it was all illuminated by spirit. And but there was you you were not allowed. The priests were forbidden to wear anything made out of wool in the inner court because the wool speaks of sweat and human effort. And, and we can, we know how to do this and we can make it happen. And I'm just not interested in that kind of intercession, especially in the presence of the Lord. I'm interested in that, which is, which is, uh, motivated by the Holy Spirit, which is fueled by the Holy Spirit, which is illuminated by the Holy Spirit An atmosphere of worship fills that place. So I was at this prayer conference last week, uh, out in Troy, Ohio, and, uh, And at the prayer conference, this woman who was originally from Chicago, named Alexandria, led the worship on Friday night. And it was probably the most intimate corporate worship experience I ever had. Just about everyone in the place had their shoes off. Because we knew we were on holy ground. It was so intimate. It was so amazing. I was reading yesterday, when the Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon... She brought a special kind of wood. And I think it would probably translate into something like sandalwood. And Solomon used it for the steps going up to the temple and up to the palace. Sandalwood, historically, is considered an aphrodisiac, the aroma of it. It's it's an invitation to intimacy. Are you hearing me? The steps leading up into the house of the Lord, the steps leading up into the palace, the king's palace, was of a wood that's rare and expensive and is known to be an invitation to intimacy. Mm. We, We entered into between an hour and a half and two hours of spontaneous worship. I told her afterward, I said, Alexandria, you are royalty. And uh, I said, I want you to come to Apple Creek. She said, okay, I'll come. And she's scheduled to be here when George is here. And, and, and uh, I want us, more than we ever have any other year, to be able to get rid of whatever... Baggage we've accumulated in the last year, unresolved issues, conflict, pain, all of that, say goodbye to all of that and hear the Lord about the new year. And so I want to I ask you if you can prioritize that Rosh Hashanah weekend Friday through Sunday because I believe it's going to be a pivotal time for many of us. Amen. Luke 16.1 Jesus said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master has taken the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig. I don't want to go dig ditches. I'm ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do, that when I'm put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. And so he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? So he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the sons of the kingdom, or the sons of this world, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. It's not a good report. And I say to you, Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So what would you say the least is? The least is the money, right? Material wealth. There's kind of a riddle here it it really doesn't make a lot of sense at surface value because if you serve money this would seem to justify you right it actually does the opposite it reveals what you're faithful to what has strings in your heart Verse 11, therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? So how faithfully you serve mammon when it rules you, and let's be honest, most of us grew up being ruled by mammon, by what serves our needs, what serves our interests, right? That's... that's, before Jesus came into our life, all of us were there. And I can just tell you that one way or another, all of us were there. All of us were driven by some need to preserve things for ourselves, to work the angles for ourselves. If any of you were born with a divine nature, let me know. But that's, I'm telling you, we weren't born with that. How faithfully you serve mammon when it rules you shows God how faithfully you will serve him as he frees you from mammon and calls you to serve only him. Think about the Apostle Paul. He faithfully served the law law with his whole heart. The Lord saw that here was a man who did not compromise. Whatever he served, he served with his whole heart. He went after it with everything that he had. And he completely devoted himself to it. One thing that I see as a real asset in the Amish culture, and especially in the generation I grew up, not so much the younger generation maybe, but every part of their life was affected by what they believe. You know, when God gets into that, he can use that. But it showed the Lord how faithfully Paul would serve him. How complete his surrender would be. How he would serve him with his whole heart when he just turned his direction around. He just had to change masters. But he served the Lord as passionately as he had served the law of Moses. Verse 12, and if you've not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? I remember the first time the Lord smacked me upside the head with that verse was when I was serving another man's ministry. And uh, the Lord knows how to get inside my skin. And deal with my motivations. And work with my heart. This verse is key to understand how God elevates you in ministry. If you haven't been faithful to serve another man's vision, God won't entrust you with your own. Now you have to hear my heart here, because I'm just getting started. Don't ever try to take authority where God hasn't given you responsibility. This is a question that we need to ask ourselves when we're dealing with any ministry that God has given someone else responsibility for. Who will stand before God and answer for this ministry or for this business? Or for this family. And that's a sacred space. I'll tell you what. It's a sacred space. When the Lord first dealt with me about this, I was serving another pastor in Virginia. And it was back in the early 90s. And after I got there, I mean, we liquidated everything we could. And we relocated to another state to obey the Lord. And I've been going through the mill leading up to it. I had been going through severe faith tests. I knew the voice of the Lord, and I knew what he was asking of me. And so we packed everything up and relocated to another state, and we were invited to go on staff. And the Lord led us there through an open vision. This was not Yuri's idea, trust me. And uh, after I got there, I found out this pastor actually expected me to submit my will to his. Can you believe it? (laughs) Up until that point, the only one that I'd ever submitted my will to was Jesus. Lord, I'm only submitted to you. I don't know if any of you have ever said that, but I had. I'm only submitted to you. I'm only accountable to you. That's probably one of the highest forms of rebellion, actually. And I'm like, Lord, this man actually expects me to submit my will to his. That did not feel good at all. And the Lord said, remember I told you that I've called you to be a father? And I said, yeah. He said, before you can be a father, you have to be a son. I'm like, oh. Okay. All right. All right. I will submit to him. And then the Lord said something that shocked me even further. He said, If this man ever learns to trust you, someday I will learn to trust you. Mmm. Boy, that went down like a rat sandwich, let me tell you. <laughs> but it went down. I ate it. I did. And that and that man learned to trust me. And as I and as I began to learn that my submission to his authority didn't lead to bondage, it actually led to freedom. I came into the same revelation the centurion did. That when I'm under authority, I can exercise great authority. It's actually the key to authority. It's actually the key to authority. And then the Lord, as I was learning to submit to him, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed my time there after that because I wasn't battling with this thing in me that refused to bend, you know. And then the Lord spoke to me, and he said, someday you're going to do this man's funeral. And I know now looking back that what he was saying was, this is a long-term relationship, don't screw it up. And I did. Two years ago I did his wife's funeral, last year I did his funeral. And they learned to trust me with their assets. As you honor them and their assignment, God will honor you. If you backbite them, spread dishonor against them, murmur against them, you're showing the Lord how far you can be trusted to serve the one you've been assigned to. Like I said, this is not a Sunday school lesson. It's not a kindergarten class. We're training warriors here. Honor and loyalty to serve our heart values. But those values are the result of decisions that you make. You can build a ministry, social media platform. You can promote yourself into a place of influence and authority, but God won't occupy what he doesn't build. God doesn't define success the way that man does. There's a lot of little people that don't have a very deep foundation at all building something big because they know how to build a website and to draw an audience. But that doesn't mean that God is occupying what they're building or that it's going to stand through the storm. And everything will go through the storm and be tested. What you build on your own, you'll have to prop up on your own. And you'll have to keep it alive by human effort often by artificial means. Psalm 127.1 is such an important verse. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I don't stay awake. Very seldom. I go home at night and I sleep well. Why? Because I know the Lord's built the house. And when he builds it, I don't have to stress over it. I don't have to fret over it. When you're building what he's building, you don't have to lose sleep over how it will keep going. We planted Freedom Fellowship in obedience to the word of the Lord. On Independence Day, 2004. 2004. I've known through the time of serving what he was building that during our years on the backside of the desert, and we went through those years, and you will go through those years, that where where we were hidden and overlooked, that he was developing foundations in the church and in us. And I've also known that when the Lord says it's time to present the ministry to the world, we would have the foundation that we needed to stand on. That would hold it up. If we'd tried to build that platform and promote ourselves before we were ready, we could not have carried what he's bringing now. There's no way we could have carried it. Premature elevation is one of the worst things that can happen to a ministry or anything else that God is building. I've also watched what has happened to people who would speak against this ministry and I don't talk about this stuff I don't know if I've ever said what I'm going to say but I feel like the Lord said people need to at least know we've always chosen to forgive and to love when people have spoken against us or our ministry and bless those who curse us sometimes we've had to battle through some stuff to get there but we've always done it But let me say it another way. When it's obvious that God is blessing and promoting someone or something, it's not wise to listen to people's gossip and slander about them. Because in the final analysis, whatever gossip or whatever people are saying really doesn't mean much. What the Lord is saying means everything. And if there's a contradiction between the two, I'm just here to tell you the Lord's the one who's right. Proverbs 26, 2, like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow, so a curse without cause shall not alight. Let me read that in the New Living. Like a fluttering sparrow or or a darting swallow, an undeserved curse will not land on its intended victim. You know, um, Balak tried to get Balaam to curse Israel, and he couldn't do it. He said, "How can I curse what God is blessing?" I, you know what I, you know what I long for, is to see uh, a generation of believers who when they see someone who walks in places that they do not, but that they're hungry for, that they'll go after them and try to find out what that person... You know, when I see someone who's going places in God that I haven't been, I want to get to know them. I want to find out what they know. I want to find out what they've learned in their journey, because I want to learn from that. I'm not going to be jealous of what they have. That'd be dumb. That's just going to hinder me, not them. But I want to find out what they know. I want to learn the things that they've learned so that I can seek those things out for myself. Because the same God who supplied all of that for them has more than enough for all of his sons and daughters. And I don't have to have what they have because God can bring me the same thing. So what happens to a curse that won't land on the intended victim? If somebody curses and slanders someone that God is blessing and there's no... uh, There's nothing there that deserves that curse or that's opened the door for that curse. Let let me go back to it a little bit. Like a flitting sparrow, like a flying swallow. So... Um, a sparrow lands on a nest that's built for it. Okay? If there's no nest been built for that sparrow to land in, the sparrow's not going to find a place to rest. He's going to find another place to sit. Right? That's what it's saying. If you haven't uh, deserved the thing that comes against you, it's not going to land on you. So, if someone curses you, and you're innocent, you didn't deserve, you're either a, a subject or an object of somebody's slander or gossip or something take out of, taken out of context, something that's, that's totally uh, undeserved by you, it returns to the person who sent it. And depending on the condition of your heart, your words will produce life or death. Why do I say depending on the condition of your heart? Because Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words really come out of your heart. What you, Maybe, you know, we can come around Christians and we can speak Christianese, you know? But when we're not around Christians, what's really in our heart comes out. When we're alone, when we're, somebody cuts us off in traffic, when we come under pressure, you know, when somebody rubs us the wrong way, what's really in our heart will come out, whether it's life or death. And James said very clearly that you can't bring sweet and bitter water out of the same place. In other words, no matter how much we dress our words up, if they're bitter, they're bitter no matter what they sound like. You understand what I'm saying? Because if, if... The first place that the children of Israel went to when they crossed over the Red Sea and left Egypt was to deal with the bitter waters so that they'd be made sweet. The first place God wants to take all of us in our relationship with him is to get rid of any bitter water that's inside of us. Any bitterness, any resentment, any unforgiveness, anything inside of us that's not going to allow the sweet life of the Holy Spirit to flow out of us. First place that Jesus dealt with his disciples after the resurrection. Whosoever sins you remit, they're remitted to them. Whoever sins you retain, they're retained. First thing he dealt with was, okay, now that you have a new heart, you've been born again, now you can forgive those who've offended you, those who've sinned against you, so that the bitter waters inside of you can be made sweet. So it's the same, it's the fulfillment of that analogy in Exodus when they came to the bitter waters of Mara. Verse 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you'll either serve God and his eternal kingdom, or you will serve your own interests. You'll make decisions in light of eternity, or in light of your earthly kingdom and what's good for you. In other words, when you're always looking for an angle that serves your interests best, you're serving mammon. Steve and I talked about this a little bit the other day. George is talking about, George will probably be talking about this when he comes because George is Greek and he'll unpack the Greek understanding of this stuff, and it's a major issue in the body of Christ. I suspect that there are very few churches and ministries in the Western world that are not influenced more by mammon than they are by faith and obedience to the Lord. I'm just being serious. Which means they're motivated more by fear than they are by faith. They make their decisions based on, well what if this is... when you're in a place where you're motivated by fear you can't be you can't respond in obedience and faith all of us are somewhere in that process but it can help to know what our motives really are Amen? Let's stand. I'm going to pray. If any of you needs to hit the altar while I'm praying, feel free. It's always open. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to minister to warriors in your kingdom. Lord, I ask if anyone is choking on some of the stuff that I threw out this morning that you'd help them. Ask, Lord, that you would find in this place sons and daughters who are willing to sell out completely to serve your uh, eternal kingdom. That they'd be motivated by a desire to know you intimately. And, Lord, any price that's required for me to come into that, I will gladly pay. Forgive us, Lord, where we've been driven and motivated to serve our own interests above your interests, where we've come first instead of you, where we try to work the angles in using your word to feather our own nest instead of seeking your kingdom first. When you clearly told us in your word, if you seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness, all these things will be added to us. Holy Spirit, would you come and do some deep surgical stuff inside of us? Would you prepare us to be frontline warriors who will go anywhere you ask us to go, pay any price that it requires of us with no fear, with no intimidation. Some of us intercessors, let's be praying for people here. Holy Spirit, you're raising up people in this place who are called to go to nations. For too long, Safety has been a value that we've elevated above obedience. ask, Lord, that in this place you would raise up warriors that are willing to die for you. That do not walk in fear. That only want to hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant that only want their life to count for eternity, because your word tells us that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Whatever it costs us, Lord, give us grace to pay that price. I thank you that you meet us where we are. This is not a word of condemnation or judgment or accusation. It's an invitation to a place of freedom that's only known by those who have surrendered everything. Those who have a passionate desire to dwell in your presence above everything else. Forgive us, Lord, for every time we've violated your word, every time we've been dishonoring and have not been faithful to serve those you've assigned us to. And I ask Lord that there would never ever be leaders in this place that do not serve out of love. That do not who do not love your sons and daughters and do what's best for them. And that we would never ever look at a son or daughter. And want to take advantage of them or to violate them in any way, but that we would recognize that we're going to stand before you and answer for how we have ministered to your family. Let that be a reality to every one of us, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. thank you Lord when I went out to the prayer conference last week the wife of the the guy that convened the conference host spoke on Saturday night I had to leave Saturday noon to get back here but She spoke on Saturday night and they sent me the video clip of it. God gave her this passionate desire when she sold out to the Lord to know him. She started spending hours every day just in his presence, worshiping, praying. The Lord literally started taking her to nations. He would literally transport her to frontline positions where people were getting ready to die. And the Lord would give her grace to interview and intervene. It was amazing. One time she ended up in the middle of a mosque. Where normally a woman, and, and I mean, she was there. American woman in a mosque in the Middle East would normally have died. But she explained to them, look, I don't have a passport. I don't have a ticket. I was brought here by the Lord to give you a message. And people turned to the Lord. It was its absolutely incredible. Where God wants to take us, what he wants to do with us, is so beyond our ability to imagine if we'll just sell out to him. So thank you, Jesus, for your presence ministering to our hearts. And by the way, when I talk about ministry, I'm not just talking about people that are called to full time ministry, your job is your platform. You can be just as sold out at your job in your neighborhood as you can be if God's called you into full-time ministry in the church. God wants you to carry his presence in such a way that transformation can happen everywhere you go. I I want to see a time when all of God's people are able to live their life by divine appointment. Because when you have an appointment and God gives you a divine appointment, you show up just at the right place at just the right time. When that begins to happen to you, I'll tell you what, it's a life of fruitfulness like no other. Jamie, I was talking to Jamie the other night and he was praying for me and he got this word, breakfast. He didn't know what it meant. He just got the word breakfast. But as soon as I heard it, I knew where I was supposed to go to breakfast the next morning. and I did, and I had a divine appointment. that's probably a, like a major thing. So for we have ears to hear what God is saying all the time and are open to His divine appointments, it'll be amazing. Thank you Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for a move of God that's coming to our kids. I thank you that we're going to begin to see kids in this place that are so serious and so sold out to the Lord at a very young age that they're literally going to be carriers of revival before they go to school. Thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the deep surgical work that you do in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus.